The following podcast contains explicit language. About Race is sponsored by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race. The bi-weekly, multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post-yet-still-very-racial America. You could say all that or just call this show About Race. From Los Angeles, I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are my co-hosts, Raquel Cepeda, author of Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina, and Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. Here's what we've got for you today. First, Fresh Off the Boat, the very historic, very important sitcom about an Asian-American family. The first season is a wrap, and we binge-watched the whole thing. Did we like it? Would we do it again? Will we answer these questions? Second, White people, including Florida Governor Jeb Bush, claiming racial identities that are not their own. What does it mean for our great nation? We'll discuss race as a social construct. And finally, Dixon D. White, not his real name, self-proclaimed fat, formerly racist redneck, has become a YouTube sensation for down-home rants from his Ford F-150 against white supremacy. Is America ready for the Dixon racial healing video selfie challenge? We'll wrap things up with our tips and recommendations, something we like to call Yo, Check This Out. Now, for those of y'all interested in being a part of our national conversation about conversations about race, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Show About Race, or just point your internet box at showaboutrace.com. Send us your thoughts, your tweets, your comments. We want to hear them. We want all of you to be a part of the show. So, so Raquel, uh, what's what's going on with you? Give us a little update. What's, how you doing? Well, last time you saw me, I was en route to Wilmington, North Carolina, to partake in the National Azalea uh, Ringside Tournament, boxing tournament, which I won. So it's you my won first a boxing tournament. Yeah, it's my first national belt. <laughs> So, so I'm very, 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 very happy. We have to be careful debating you on this show because yes. you'll just beat us down. Yes. <laughs> well, congratulations on Thank the victory. Thank you. That's dope. I, uh, I don't have any such victorious updates. Uh, I'm back on the west side. It's lovely out here. But I'll be coming back to New York for most of May. And uh, my company, Cultivated Wit, has a big comedy hackathon coming up. People can find out at comedyhackday.org. We smash comedians and developers together to build ridiculous uh, internet products on purpose funny uh and i'm looking forward to spending time in new york when it's, it's warm there uh what's up with you what's up with you tanner uh i'm starting a feud with cornell west <laughs> you know that's a hot thing to do right now it is <laughs> it is it's, we're all ganging up on him it's a thing it's gonna be fun um it's going well it's going very well <laughs> Spe- speaking of cornell west you know there's a uh, there's a lot that goes on in between our shows, and listeners might be a little frustrated at the fact that we don't talk about everything that has to do with race in our national conversation about conversations. Uh, so we just want to be explicit about the things we're not going to talk about in this episode. And piggybacking right off of Tanner's latest project, uh, we're not going to talk about Michael Eric Dyson versus Cornell West in the pages of The New Republic. That's what the Internet's for. Uh, go get it. What, what else are we not talking about? Ben Affleck being descended from slave owners. Sorry, we're not going to talk about that. You can go read about it online. 
Um, yeah. The new Adam Sandler movie, Native yeah. Americans Walking Off. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that we're either. We're not going to talk about The Ridiculous that. Six, we're not going to talk about that or how unfunny right. Adam Sandler has been for the, at least the past decade. Since Happy Gilmore. <laughs> Why don't you, uh, thank you for helping us not talk about those things. Tanner, why don't you lead us off? Okay, so fresh off the boat, we've all just finished watching it. It's the new ABC mid-season replacement sitcom based on the memoir of the same name by Eddie Huang, who has very controversially and very publicly disavowed his own show. Uh, It was created for TV by Nanachka Khan, former showrunner of Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23, and also a writer on Seth MacFarlane's American Dad. Um, It is, as we have been incessantly reminded over and over and over again, the very important first Asian-American family sitcom in 20 years since Margaret Cho's All-American Girl and only one of a handful of Asian representative shows ever made here in America. Um, There's a lot of weight on, uh, on the shoulders of this show, a lot of expectations, but were there a lot of laughs? How many episodes would you have made it through if this were not homework for today's show? I retained an episode and a half even though I can identify with a lot of what they're talking about being mm-hmm. a child of immigrants to, um, to America. Right. So I, could, I, could, I, I totally get it. All right, Baratunde, given all the things clogging up your uh, DVRQ, is this something that you will, will make time for in the future? You know what? I will. I, um, I have a lot of TV commitments. I'm still catching up on Fringe. Uh, I'm re-watching uh, The Wire I'm trying to keep up with how to get away with murder and empire. So I have a, a great deal of visual commitments. But Fresh Off the Boat actually has made the cut for me. I was surprised um, at, at how much that I wanted to know what would happen next, and especially in the format that it is. I'm not a big fan of, like, broadcast network sitcoms. But this one has got me legitimately curious outside of podcast homework. Yeah. All I all I can think is that if I were waiting 20 years for something and this is what I got, I would be profoundly, profoundly disappointed. I just could not get through how unfunny vast, vast long stretches of this show were. Occasional moments of tenderness with the family and occasion, occasional moments of, you know, mild humor. But I could watch 15, 20 minutes of the show before a single laugh would come up. Now, there's a fresh-off-the-show live webcast by Phil Yu, who's the angry runs the Angry Asian Man blog, and comedian Jenny Yang, and they love it. They're all into it. This show just didn't land for me at all. Raquel, you're our resident first-generation American. What did or did not land for you from that perspective? Actually, you know what? Let me redefine first, second generation, because I was put in check by a sociologist, actually, from NYU, who told me that first generation would be Eddie Huang's parents, mm-hmm. and then their second, we're second generation because we're the children born of that generation. So just First so American can, born. Yeah, first American born. So, so yeah, no, I, I you know, liked his memoir a lot more, and when I... Um, found that it was being optioned for a sitcom, I wasn't expecting it to resemble the book. Right. Because Why the book it? would be more like, you know, like something for HBO or Showtime. It was a little bit more raw. But at the same time, I don't think all the criticism is super fair. I mean, he did understand what he was doing. He signed the bottom line. He should have probably Googled what's been on ABC. But here's you know? the thing. Everyone keeps telling him, you know, oh, it was ABC. What, what did he expect? But both Modern Family with gay marriage and Blackish with, with the whole middle class back, they deal with it much more smartly than this, this show deals with his memoir. I think it's because I, it's so been I so long since you've seen Asian Americans on television. I don't know. Maybe they're just trying to do too much. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't really know. And the, I don't, 
we also don't have a point of comparison. Like Blackish isn't based on a memoir, and right. to my knowledge, nor is Modern Family. So book to TV translation has an extra disappointment hurdle to try to be authentic to some pre-existing text. But I mean, the, one of my favorite scenes in the whole series is where they do the subtitling of a conversation between his mother's character and her sister. Her sister's down to Orlando to visit from D.C., ostensibly more successful. Her brother-in-law runs the furniture shop that her own husband used to work at and struck off on his own to kind of start this barbecue business down in Florida. And her mother is down. And they're playing off each other, trying to be mom's favorite. They're never saying what they mean. But the subtitles do that translation for you. And it was just such a, for me, it was like a pretty hilarious and novel twist on Asian subtitles in film. Like they're speaking English, but they're not saying what they mean. Right, exactly. You know, I've been reading a lot of the articles by uh, Asian Americans who said that, you know, I actually identify less with Eddie Huang's memoir and more with the show. And I feel like there's like this thing, I think that's what's really peeving him off about authenticity, especially as, you know, um, second generation Americans. It's like you, you almost have to over assert your otherness you have to you know always fight not to forget as we saw in the in the amazing i loved 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 the season finale about you know jenny who is eddie huang's mother in on the show about her really trying to wrestle with you know staying chinese right i mean the season finale i would say was the only decent episode of the season precisely for that reason it really went in deep and dealt with these people as real characters and their experience as uh, American immigrants in a real way. I watched the the showrunner, Nanachka Khan, her first show was Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23. And the first episode of that show was hilarious. And then the rest of the run of it was just really weird and strange and and random. And Because they, they introduced all these random premises and had no idea where to go with them. And once I read that she had been a writer on American Dad, well, then it all clicked because she writes for cartoons. And that's what she writes. And her facility with real human people and real human emotions is just not good. The basic premise of the show, for anyone who who doesn't know yet, is that this Taiwanese-American family from D.C. moves to Orlando so the dad can open a Western-themed restaurant. And there are three kids, and they struggle with assimilation in this white bread suburb. And so there's a lot of meat there to deal with. But there's like one scene in the, the episode Superstitious where the father goes to the bank and he's trying to cash a check and the teller has a picture of a grandchild there. And he goes, oh, you have a lovely granddaughter. And he goes, that's my grandson. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, sir. And she goes, no, it's ma'am. And it's like, well, wait, he can't differentiate between genders. Like, why is that funny? A, why does that have to do with his character as a father or as a business owner or as an immigrant it has nothing to do with who that character is and there's just a million examples of that of them larding the show with zany wacky business for the characters to do that have nothing to actually do with who they are as people i think you're i mean i saw some things that i found endearing like i one of my favorite um episodes had to do with taiwanese basketball i just love all that you know culture but what i really took away from that was you know eddie in his own mind, imagining this Taiwanese basketball thing to be so cool and so, like, you know, all about, like, you know, uh, kung fu flicks and all that. Because it's, like, what he absorbed from Chinese culture, given out, pumped out by American culture, because he's American-Chinese, yeah, exactly. and how he kind of projected that in his brain mm-hmm. and how we're able to see that. Right. I could identify because, you know, you kind of sometimes create these, you know, romantic, idealistic stories about yeah. where your parents came from, that it's so great, it's so awesome. And, you know, 
and 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 I think that's what happened with that particular um, episode, and that's why I, it really uh, resonated with me. All right, I'm going to interject yeah. here. I to so say, agree with you. You and I, you and I made a bet in the lobby that we actually liked the same episode and a half out of thirteen. And you're exactly right. It was the ah. final episode about the, the are we too assimilated or not, and it was the Shaolin basketball dream sequence. And those are the only good things out high of 13... Five. Uh, high five. Those are the only good <laughs> things out of 13 just... episodes because they're based in something real. And what the you're, the worst you're, the worst you're, you're speaking with so much like certainty that is <laughs> it's absolutely so demonstrably bad. false. You can't say that they're the only good things about 13 episodes. They're just the not ones that I'm resonated saying, with me most. I'm saying they're the things that Raquel and I agreed on before we came in here. But yeah, but, but but where I where I where we where we you know kind of diverge is that I didn't love all 13 episodes, but those two are the ones that stood out to me the most. I love those two episodes. I didn't hate it. I thought it was yeah. okay. I thought it was good. It's a sitcom, and it's a sitcom in 2015. It's too much to ask for every character statement in every scene to have to have to do with being an immigrant, first of all, or being like Chinese American. And then the last thing I'll say is this, it's a heart of Eddie's character. And I know he's all like pissed off that it's not his exact words in the book. And we're, I'm glad we're not really focusing on that part because I think there's more to it than what the author of the original text thinks about the translation. But the role of like his embrace of hip hop and the way that they play that character, like I just love it for the soundtrack. I love that he has his grandmother roll out in a wheelchair with a boombox when he wants to announce major news in his family. And he's like big upping himself and like, yo, who's who's the class president? This kid right here. That he's dropping biggie lines and his crush is all defined around sharing mixtape with this girl that he likes on the bus. That is, uh, that's significant to me and like, and and worth, uh, you know, in the plus column of why this show is not just a wacky random network sitcom, which I, I would have ignored uh, if I just saw like a poster, his father, by the way, he actually reminded me a lot of my own father. So that was profound really? to me. Yeah, trying to use, mm. you know, um, whatever white faces he can to be able to get accepted, to be able to, you know, lead the charge. Do you guys think that the argument that going like diluting but hitting more people still does some good, or or should a show like this have kept it more real and ended up on Showtime or HBO or Netflix or Amazon? where you could have more profanity, where you could have the abusive father relationship, where Eddie wouldn't be so pissed off in his Twitter feed because it wasn't his real life. Is there still value to a watered-down, mass-market version of an Asian-American family story? Well, because it is what it is, I think that's a good point of departure to send people to, you know, point point people, point the masses to his book. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And I think they can learn more about his own story um, by doing that. I think, you know, speaking to a lot of people is cool. I just think that um, FOB, at least for me, was a little too diluted. Okay, but here's the thing. There's a difference between safe and accessible and watered down. Modern Family makes gay marriage safe and accessible and nice thing, you know, broadcast into American living rooms. But it's still funny. Like here, they've just really, really watered it down. And I think this show deserves a reboot. I think that you just sort of like say, all right, it was like the Fantastic Four. We did it. It wasn't very good. We need to take it down to the studs and do it over again. <laughs> okay. Well, I think maybe we've made some progress when the the watering down and the wackiness, we've come like a long way since Long Duck Dong. And most of the wackiness, to your point, is a bit random. It's not necessarily grounding the characters. It's certainly not playing on a whole string of Asian Asian American stereotypes. Uh, so it's just typical 
network TV nonsense as opposed to like some racialized stereotypical network TV nonsense. And that's progress, right? I mean, what it is is that it's it's a show that could finally destroy the model minority myth because here we have a group of Asian people who have created something very mediocre and it's being accepted. You know what? I wish it was a, I wish it was still like the 70s because I think all the best sitcoms, I was telling Tanner this offline were created in the 70s all in the family archie bunker's mm-hmm. place the good Norman times Leeward, yeah. yeah the jeffersons different strokes i mean they all had wacky moments but they were a lot more provocative and uh even polarizing i would say i think well, we've regressed I... <laughs> so um one of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about when um we talked about J chokalingam and his nonfiction remake of Soul Man was an article about Jeb Bush where he um, checked the Hispanic box on a 2009 voter registration form. And I think it was plausibly either his wife filled it out, maybe, or he just made a mistake or he couldn't see what was going on. I don't want to I don't want to pass this off as an obsequious attempt to court Latino voters, because I really don't personally think that's what well, it no was. one would have just no one. No, no voter yeah. would have known about it. So. Yeah, I think people are making a big deal out of it. But what I found interesting in that story was all the op eds that came out after, which was about, um, you know, becoming less a white because you either marry a non-white person or because, you know, you hang around non-white people or because race is a social construct, but it's a social construct when it benefits white Americans, which I think was kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Baratunde? How do I say this without sighing a lot? There's <laughs> race isn't real. Race is very real and it still matters. And I, I love this idea in some weird way that of white people becoming less white because it means we're winning. Hey, hey Raquel. Uh, but it also <laughs> means that, you know, when, when there are some jokes in, in a lot of interracial relationships that I've seen and, and at least one that I've been in where it's like, oh, when the revolution comes, like you're going to be safe because you're like one of the good ones. You know, well, I'll put you on the, on the safety list on like the do not harm list that you are somehow your more intimate experience with being an other, whether, through the child that you are raising that doesn't quite look like you or the person, a spouse and life partner you've chosen whose experience is presumably much different from yours, that the level of empathy is so much higher because of that direct contact, that direct experience that you are not necessarily like you're not Hispanic, you're not Native American, you're not you don't become another race, but you do become more sensitive to more open to and more directly like empathetic to some of the travails of what it means to be an other in America. And, and so the idea, whatever Jeb's Bush's reason, and this is a voter registration form, it's not a public form, he's not, it doesn't help with anything, but it is an interesting thing to think about his family, his experience, the kids that he's raising, the woman that he chose, the years he spent in Venezuela, and what has that done to his own self-definition of his racial identity, which is largely, I think, especially among white people, looking at Tanner now, questioning, Uh, just accepted or not discussed at all. Like, there is no race. It's like brown people and yellow people have a race, and white people just don't have to ever deal with it. So the idea of white people having to deal with it because of the relationships, the intimate relationships that they've chosen through parenting and through love, uh, it fascinates me. Yeah, but I think that's that's like a worthy leap for some of them. But I don't think you become something else. I think that, you know, for me, like, there was an article that I really wanted to like because it was written by a friend of mine's friend, by uh, Jack Chang, white parents becoming <laughs> okay. a little less white. And it yeah. just made me kind of roll my eyes because I see that the intentions were good. But just because you are married to a non-white person doesn't make it you like the best leader for the diversity talks in your company. 
Um, you know, I think that a lot of the, I think that the comment section was more interesting. And, you know, there were people saying, look, I'm a white woman. I'm married to, you know, whatever, a black man, whatever. And I am definitely more viscerally um, um, aware about what's going on. And I, you know, I empathize and I'm sensitive, but I'm not a black man or a black woman. But I don't that's not so I didn't read it as and I was trying to be careful even with my own words. I don't think you become black when you marry someone who's black. You don't become Latina when you marry someone who's Latina. But you, like because so much of race is social, when your social experience changes and when people look at you differently because of who you're with, you do become more something or you become less something. And and I wouldn't say that you like just totally switch. It's not a soul man experiment. I also, there's a part of me that's bothered by the idea that to really make progress, like 200 million people have to go through this direct experience. Like, why has gay marriage become so much more acceptable? And these politicians flip when they find out, like, their nephew's gay. And so it's like someone in their family has a direct experience with the thing, and all of a sudden they give a damn. That's not really a scalable way to deal with injustice if you have to directly feel it and be, like, blood-related to it. But you just hit the nail on the head with with the whole gay rights issue it's because they know them that that Mm -hmm. they're able to overcome it like white people are very very good at not being racist in a perfectly abstract way it is only when we interact with people on a substantial personal level that we are able to deal with this you say it's not scalable it's the only way that it works do you think that like like dismissing race as a social construct especially on in a country and a society that's founded on white supremacist ideas do you think that's like a a bleeding heart liberal way just not to deal with it when you dismiss it as such? I think I think it's win-win to do it. it you, you, I mean, look, the, the wife of this, this Chinese man still has every advantage of being white, yeah. but you get all the political bonus points of saying, oh, I empathize and I understand and, and you know, I can go either way. And it's the same with, like, Elizabeth Warren and all these people who who can claim a little bit of a little bit of sliver of, well, you know, my brother is this or I'm part that. And it gets you out of being the bad guys. Like, well, I'm not one of those bad guys, but I'm still going to, you know, enjoy everything that I have. I could do it myself. I'm half Cajun. I could, you know, claim my non-white heritage if I wanted to. I don't, but, you know, I could. I could. And so. Why don't you? Because I'm just a white guy. My my mother was Cajun. My grandparents were Cajun, but they chose to assimilate. And now I'm here. And what, what's interesting, what's fascinating about Cajuns is that they can legitimately say that they're the only other group that ever came to America on a boat against their will. Right? Cause they, <laughs> Are Cajuns descendants of the Acadians? The, in, okay. Acadians in yeah. Canada. And they were purged out of Nova Scotia by the British, and their villages were burned, and they were put on ships and, and sent to America. And so for centuries, they didn't consider themselves American. And so, you know, I could say, oh, I'm less white, but, you know, I generally don't do that. I mean, I enjoy the food. Um, yeah, but how about like, there's like a history of like white people that, and, and actually, it's always like somebody. Not always, but often somebody who, at least in my life, who's educated, like I'll, I'll meet somebody who has, you know, taken, has gone to university, has taken like, you know, black history courses. And like one girl told me, I fucking hate being white. You know, she had a, she had a baby with a, with, a, with a black American and everything. She kind of like fashions herself to try to pass for Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. So I think that is dangerous. And I think that's not really overcoming race or, you know, or even respecting the other or respecting the community that you feel so guilty for subjugating. Right. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think there's a different way to deal with that than, you know. No, it really, the, the 
what does the Chappelle show skit about the racial draft, about who gets who, really nails this on the head. Because it's like, you know, when the Senate is 49-49 and the two independents have to decide who they're going to caucus with, right? They can pick a side and decide who they're going to be, and that side will get all the chairmanships and get all the power and everything else. And so do you want to be considered Puerto Rican or black or or Asian to get the street cred of, you know, being more authentic and more real? Or do you want to caucus with the white people because they have all the money? It's just a matter of picking which side you want to be on. Or really, like a lot, some of these people, or Jeb Bush or Elizabeth Warren, you're choosing to be on both sides. But it's so, and it's I think so there, convenient. There's something, it is convenient. Yeah, that, that, that convenience, uh, which doesn't come with a very high charge, like there's a superficial embrace of uh, quote-unquote ethnicity, and you see it in fashion, you see it in lips and butt pads and like all that sort of thing. Paul Mooney, you know, just such a raw and stellar comedian, has, I'm pretty sure this is his line, it's like everybody wants to be a nigga, but nobody wants to be a nigga. You know, when it comes down to it, like, you will opt out of that choice when it comes down to police, when it comes down to housing policy, when it comes down to health outcomes. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, oh, no, I'm definitely not brown there. Like, who would choose... Who would You wouldn't choose to be black if you suddenly had to inhabit the body of Tamir Rice, right? Mm-hmm. That That's just... No one would choose to be black in that very moment. Like, you would want to be the white kid playing with the gun in the park in that in that moment, but because the risk is too damn high. Right, but when you see these, you know, the, at least the articles, the op eds that I've read, I just think it's a double standard that it's okay for you know whites to become other, but then it doesn't work the other way around. I think that's just another example. But it does work the other way of around. white blinders. No, Don Lemon use... becomes black is. I don't want to talk about Don Lemon. You don't want to talk about Don Lemon. No, but people <laughs> people of color assimilate every day. It happens all the time. Yeah, but. I don't think that Don Lemon assimilating, if that's what you want to call what he's doing, is necessarily working out well. I mean, maybe getting him on the what in GQ, right? Similar, but it does. I think it's an embarrassment. I don't know. Well, I think the embarrassment of Don Lemon is his skills as a newscaster. I'm not sure that it's it's specifically his race, like a racial embarrassment. Oh no, no, no! Yeah. It's not a racial embarrassment. But I'm. But he's okay, just good. So yeah. we can all just agree. We that could it's agree just on a that. Human embarrassment. Yeah, right. Yeah. But in terms, it's just an excuse to bring up Don Lemon. <laughs> but in terms of people who are who are at the threshold and are picking sides, yeah, you have these people who are white people who are either feigning or appropriating some identification that goes the other way. But when you t- in terms of, look, the only reason really to leave your group and go to another group is if that group has more and something really more to power. offer you, more power, yeah. which is why the center of gravity always pulls people but you to know the white what? side of the aisle. Not always, but, I but think, generally. But I think that a lot of that has to do with white guilt and how people process that. And for some people, the weight of, of, of white guilt... Um, it's just so heavy that they just want to identify with the other so they don't have to deal with it. You don't want to deal with yourself, but no matter where you run to, you have to deal with yourself in the mirror. And actually, this reminded me of, remember that, and I just found this out recently, and it just fucking floored me. Remember the crying Indian? Remember those those commercials back yeah, in the day? Yeah, he was Italian. He was 100% Italian. Yeah. He was an actor. Cody, uh, what is it? No, but he also he also said he was Native American. He also claimed to be in his real life Native American, and he benefited if right. you will, from passing right. in order to get jobs that there were many indigenous Americans that were qualified to, right. to take. Look, Nell Irving Painter said race is an idea, not a fact. And I'm sure we're going to come back to this idea over and over and over again. And maybe my position, our positions may change or may not. Nice. There we go. Next up, we'll talk about the Dixon's Challenge. White people crying their faces off to selfie videos on YouTube about race. But first, a word from our sponsor. 
More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters and deliver high fives. The people behind MailChimp admire the projects that spread creative empathy in the world and the creative chaos on the web. MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. All right, bringing up the rear, our third and final major story of the day. He's from Waverly, Tennessee. His YouTube channel has eight total videos. And on April 4th of this year, he posted one such video titled, I'm a redneck and I love America. Upworthy found it on April 10th, and it has blown up to over a million views, 11,000 upvotes, only 500 down. Uh, He's since issued the Racial Healing Challenge with at least 10,000 YouTube videos from this redneck southern boy from Tennessee recording selfie videos from his F-150, occasionally crying and shaking with his words, the consciousness of white people, to acknowledge America's racial history of white supremacy, to get over themselves, to stop being so damn defensive. Uh, His real name, he says, doesn't matter. He's been going by Dixon White, and he has issued a challenge to white America to wake up, to speak up, and then to shut up and listen and and learn history uh, a bit better. Let's hear some clip from his video. I ain't saying all white people are bad. I'm saying we've got an evil called white supremacy in this damn culture. Stop being defensive. Get off your fucking ass and do something about it. Speak up. Don't ever listen. Don't ever, ever ignore racism. If you hear something racist, fucking stand up as a white American. Take some fucking responsibility. It's the inaction that has always destroyed other peoples and other nations. It's the inaction. Our system sees color. Our culture sees color. We're indoctrinated to see colors. Don't tell me you can't fucking see color. Motherfucker, see color. See the black experience. See the brown experience. See what we did to Native Americans. See what colonization did. Look at what the fuck with the Crusades did. Get educated. Open a fucking book. Read, watch a fucking video. Stop being defensive. I'm saying take some fucking responsibility. All people are equal. God made us that way. All right, so... Mr. Dixon, let's call him that, Um, Mr. White, he was interviewed. Uh, The Boston Globe has done some reporting on this. The Root actually interviewed him. And I was struck by uh, this very short exchange. They asked, what do you hope to achieve with your videos? His answer, just a movement. I've started a video challenge for racial healing. I'm trying to get people, especially white people, to address that. And unlike many people calling for action, he has talked about the action that he's taken. He uh, had an incident at a, at a gun shop, at a, a Bass Pro hunting shop, where he called out one of their clerks for using the N-word with him in a sort of confidential way. She didn't believe black people should be allowed to buy guns, and he did not let that stand. And he told the manager, and he told the other black people in the shop, he's like, you know that woman over there just said the N-word, that you shouldn't be able to buy a gun? So so here, here's the, the opening set of questions. I'm, I'm just generally curious what you guys think about Dixon D. White, uh, but more specifically curious about his calls for a movement for white people to take some fucking responsibility to stop being so damn defensive and to, to talk about their experience with race with some level of uh, listening in that speech as well. Do things like this move you? Have you looked at any other response videos? Uh, what do you think? Is this a necessary step uh, along America's path to racial healing? 
the reason why it works so well with him is because, number one, he looks like somebody that I would think, if I just saw him at face value and judge a book by its cover, as a racist redneck. I would be afraid to be around him if I was visiting somewhere down south. So the fact that he challenged my own perception of racism was the first thing that grabbed me. I like his every the way he speaks, the way he delivers, and how, yes, he's passionate in a way, but he's also dispassionate in a way. It's like, yo, motherfuckers, this is what it is. And in order for us to arrive in this place that we tell everybody we're at, post-racial society, let's just start talking about the shit. And I think he was so disarming and so honest about the, you know, about about where he was coming from that it inspired a lot of people to uh, respond. People that are Black American, White American, and other. Um, what I do love the most about what he, especially that first video, is the fact that he spoke about race in a very non-binary way. He talked about it from, you know, a Black perspective a Latino perspective and a white perspective. He actually sees, he took off those blinders, those white blinders and mm. looked around his community before taping that, that video. And that's what really um, sat most, you know, that was most profound to me. Taylor? You know, I think we see this kind of thing all the time. There was a bunch of videos after mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin. First it was, I am Trayvon. Then it was, I am not Trayvon. That came right after it. And there were a bunch of those videos and they came and went. And, you know, the the headline with this guy putting out this video is this redneck may have just started a white revolution against racism, and he hasn't. Uh, the video that Upworthy sent around got, you know, over a million views. The one he did a week ago got 17,000. The one he did three days ago got 995. So this is already, like, over. I mean, it, like, as all viral things do, it peaks and it's gone. And if you look at the responses that, you know, people are posting up in reply to him, they might get 1,500 you know, responses. And I just don't think, yeah, it's wonderful for him, the catharsis that he's had in his per- personal life, uh, that he, he addresses it in this way. It's wonderful for him, this awesome thing that he did at the Bass Pro Shop. As a social media uh, effort to do something, it just doesn't really move the dial. It's a big blip. It makes people feel good. And then it, it, it dies down. I think why people have responded to it, because you say he is a big fat redneck, and I know some fat rednecks who would tell you the same thing, more so probably than you two. So it doesn't shock me that much to see him doing it. I know lots of rednecks who, who feel the same way. And I think the reason it resonates is, uh, you know, black people and racial justice uh, Internet types, this really resonates with them in the same way that Tea Party people love it when Ben Carson and Herman Cain go to Tea Party rallies and talk about black people pulling their pants up. Because it's performative. Because you see someone from the other side saying what you've always wanted them to say, and you cheer it on. Is it substantial in, in any sort of widespread way? Is it going to, like, seed a movement to, uh, to get white people to, to change their behavior? Not really. I don't know. I, I, I probably vehemently disagree with you just because I think revolution starts with the proletariat. It starts with the everyday man. It's an impulse it started movements. I remember when hip hop culture started, people were like, oh, it's going to be a fad. And it's a movement that seeded itself all over the world and has, you know, become our um, maybe probably our most, you know, powerful resonant uh, export, cultural export. Um, so I think that, you know, yeah, he got he's like it's decreasing the number of uh, video, you know, views that he's getting. But I think that he if even if he moves 10 people, 20 people, and those 20, 10 people start their own action, you know, off of, of the internet and their own communities. I think that's a beginning. That's a beginning. I think you're taking a super uber 
uh, cynical. pessimistic, and I'm cynical surprised, I'm POV. Surprised, I'm surprised that I have to be the cynical one here. You two guys should be much more cynical about white people than I am. <laughs> so this is a clip from one of the response videos that a young white woman uh, posted for the Dixon Challenge. Audrey, can you play that for us? I grew up in a family in the South, but my family was not Southern. My family was Northern. I was blessed to be given the ideals of a Northern mentality where racism was not a thing. Okay, so if you want white people flooding the internet with that kind of, you know, serious dialogue about race, uh, go ahead. You know, there was a thing on uh, Mike.com that Elizabeth Plank did a couple of weeks ago or a month or so ago where she asks men to draw what they think a vagina looks like. And they were just all these like random, really weird, bad drawings of vagina. They had no idea what they were talking about. The the videos mostly that, their eyes are closed. Right. <laughs> the videos that these white people are posting up about race remind me of drawings of vaginas made by men, because they're like they just they have no clue what they're talking about half the time. They're just repeating words like supremacy and privilege and and you know stuff they picked do. up in the ether. Some some of them are better than others, but there's it's not really. That good. So, so, so here's a. Um, I'm starting to see some some commonality in, in terms of the topics. There, dilution, authenticity, what's the value? When you look at you know any viral video movement, you could you could ask, what has it gotten us? Um, and sometimes the answer is uh, a lot of money, like the ice bucket challenge, heavily derided, but it raised so much more money for ALS than any other effort. That even though like oh we're we wasting ice, we're we wasting water, like. On net, probably a lot more good was done just in terms of funding research than like the annoyance of this being a trending topic and sort of pop culturizing science and healing and, and, and thinking about people with a very particular, very devastating illness. So I am very cautious. I, I share your caution, Tanner, about if we just if we stop at why people get to confess, you know, ignorantly to their to their front facing cameras. Um, and then feel like, whoo, man, I'm, I survived the Dixon ch- I rose to the challenge, and now we're good. Then, then let's move on. But I don't, I don't think most of the people participating in this see it that simply. His voice is just so clear that that's like not enough. And there's a there's been a missing piece in how we try to fix all this. And one of it is like getting white people to talk. And so a lot of that talk is going to be unstructured and dumb and uneducated because they weren't taught by anybody on how to listen mm-hmm. uh, and how to take in this country's real history. So if, if there's a follow through, and that doesn't have to be that formal, but I see the possibility, not just with this, but with things like this continuing to happen, that what the school system didn't do, what a presidential election can never do, to Raquel's point, that grassroots thing, some white dude in the F-150 might help contribute to in a more significant way of just opening the permissions uh, to, to let people talk about this in a way that has never has not really been encouraged. And, you know, Baratunde, I mean, people use I mean, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, white supremacists use social networking to recruit people and to spread their messages mm. of hate. So, you know, while this is not going to solve or get us to that place, I mean, it's something it's better than nothing. 
It's something. Okay, better than nothing's a pretty low standard. A. Well, and, we, where do we live? Well, the, <laughs> our standard has been pretty low. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but but here's here's the point, and this is why not only the 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 mechanism of the whole social media thing is flawed, but the substance of what he's saying, the way he's talking to white people, is just completely wrong. This whole racism, y'all, we got to do something. It's time to you know white supremacy and privilege. It's just it doesn't really connect with people. You know what? Hmm. John Kerry dropping words like Orwellian and like talking over people didn't gain gain him a lot of uh, fans either. No, that's not how. No, that's not how you talk to people either. <laughs> so when I was researching my book, I studied this group forty nine sixty three that created an integrated neighborhood in Kansas City, and the reason they did it was not because of racism, y'all, and we gotta do something about all this privilege and supremacy. The reason they did it is because they realized that rather than buying into the myth of black neighbors lowering property values, was that they realized was that by taking property rights away from black people, you were actually destroying property rights for everyone in the neighborhood. And that if you protected property rights for black people and if you gave them access to fair mortgage lending and, and, and capital to, to build homes, that you would actually then protect the housing values and property rights of everyone. So their, their incentive was to save their own neighborhood and protect their own housing values by extending the same rights and privileges to people of color. And so it was a fundamentally self-interested, self-directed thing that they did. And it took them years. It took them a decade to stabilize this neighborhood, but they did it. And thousands of low-income black and white people got access to mortgage capital, got housing, and they created uh, the best case of an integrated neighborhood in America. To do that, to keep that kind of sustained day-in, day-out, year-after-year interest in working towards a solution ultimately came from acting out of their own self-interest, not out of racism, y'all, we got to do something. So you're not going to connect with white people by doing racism, y'all, we got to do something. You're going to connect with white people by appealing to their own fundamental self-interest. And that's that really... Is just, that is so much less sexy. It is less sexy. It's le- yeah. The Colby challenge. And, it's and to, like, maybe... lull people to sleep. It's your running mate. <laughs> John Kerry is John Kerry. You're running mate. But, that, that, but that's real. Like, so, but that's real. Self-interest uh, is is motivating. <laughs> it is, and um, but continued. I don't. I don't. I, I at the risk of. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, here's. I want to ask our listeners on this one. I want to ask our white listeners. Uh, what do you all think? This is science. I'm about to invoke science. <laughs> what do you all think of of the Colby challenge uh, of self-interest and and economic prosperity for all, but mostly for self. And all being a prerequisite for self to be sustained versus less than racism, y'all. We got to deal with this white supremacy thing from uh, Dixon D. White. Uh, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. And I definitely I hear you on the like rants by Southerners. Rants by Southerners alone won't get us there. Um, I don't know. I'm My gut, and I'm, this is not science. It's just gut. That the self-interest, the economic self-interest alone isn't enough to deal with all the damage that's been done. There's the emotional and there's psychological shit going on with race in this country too. And just stabilizing like my housing values, that doesn't... But that's just an example. I'm not saying that solving housing values solves racism. I'm just saying that that is an example where white people were driven to engage with it on a sustained level out of their self-interest. Other things won't have to do with economics. So yeah, we'll we'll leave this at uh, Dixon versus Colby. Uh, Emotional, heart-rending... Uh, pickup truck filmed videos versus self-interest. 
uh, to, to move the needle forward on white people dealing with racism. It's, it's our own uh, Pacquiao versus Mayweather. Uh, but that's, that'll be a wrap on the Dixon Challenge. Uh, so, look, we call this show our national conversation about conversations about race. But our is an inclusive term, and we want you, uh, a lot of you, to be a part of it. So if you have thoughts on how we're talking, about how you're talking, about how we're talking about race, uh, let us know. Seriously, go to showaboutrace.com. Send us an email, showaboutrace at Gmail. If Twitter is your preferred thing, tweet at us at showaboutrace. And we also have a Facebook page if you prefer to hang out with your aunts and uncles and grandparents in that medium. We seriously would love to hear your extended thoughts on, uh, on how we're talking, things you think we uh, should be covering. We're going to be doing a new segment called The B-Sides. So when episode four comes out, we'll also drop episode 3B. And that's our own leftover thoughts and, and things you've been adding to the conversation. We'll respond to as many of you as we reasonably can. And finally, yo, check this out. Tanner, Raquel, what did you come across that's piqued your interest? You think people should check out. Go ahead, uh, Raquel. Oh, okay. Actually, this is a throwback. Um, it's a book called, and quotes, Exterminate All the Brutes, is a quote from Joseph Conrad's um, Heart of Darkness. And it's One Man's Odyssey into the Heart of Darkness and the Origins of European Genocide by Sven Lindqvist. And it's uh, basically using Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness as his point of departure. Sven Lindvist takes us on a haunting tour through the colonial past interwoven with a modern-day travelogue. Great book. You'll read it in two days. And his name is Sven. What you got, Tanner? So my recommendation this week is a fantastic book by a friend of mine. It's called Year of the Dunk, A Modest Defiance of Gravity by Asher Price. Uh, He's a white guy like me. Uh, about, you know, average six foot, uh, but he loves basketball and is obsessed with the dunk. And so at the ripe old age of 40-something, late 30s, something like that, he decided to embark on a quest to see if he could dunk. And so it's all about the science of the dunk and the history of the dunk, including a lot of the racial and cultural uh, politics that it brought to the game of basketball when it came into the game. Uh, It's a fascinating read. Check it out. Nice. So we got two books. Uh, My own, yo, check this out is actually uh, an event, uh, a live event. If anybody is in or can be in Miami, Florida on May 4th, it's the World Cup of Hip Hop going on. Uh, a friend of mine, Derek Ashong, is behind this. Disclosure, we, uh, there's no financial things there, but you should know that I know this dude. Uh, you can find out more at TakeBackTheMic.com. They have uh, found artists from Brazil, Colombia, and Jamaica, a true trans-American uh, flavor of hip hop uh, with artists who have a bit more substance to their message than, than simple braggadocio. So even if you can't make the series, the uh, show, there's a web series you could check out at takebackthemic.com. Check it out, y'all. Our producer today is Audrey Quinn. Our engineer is Marcia Caldwell. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can also follow along uh, or join yourself, facebook.com slash showaboutrace, twitter.com slash showaboutrace. And if you like old school email, hit us up, showaboutrace at gmail.com. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. For Raquel Cepeda and Tanner Colby, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and we won't stop until the racism is over. (laughs) 